0: Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation
1: from around the world.
2: Hello,
0: I'm Alice Brown, and I'm in the Climate and Sustainability team at Global Council, where I focus on biodiversity, nature and sustainable agriculture. At Global Council, we help companies and investors across a wide range of sectors navigate politics and policymaking. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing biodiversity credits. Put as simply as possible for what is quite a complicated topic, biodiversity credits finance actions that have measurable positive biodiversity outcomes through location-specific conservation and restoration. The voluntary biodiversity credit market has existed for a few years, but in the wake of the global biodiversity framework in December last year and the growing recognition of the interaction between nature and climate, there's increasing momentum in both the public and the private sectors to tap into this rapidly evolving space. So to talk about that, joining us today, we have Doris C. Herr, who leads the work on biodiversity credit markets at Nature Finance. And we also have Mariana Sarmiento, who is the founder and CEO of TerraSos. Why don't you both introduce yourselves and tell us a
1: little bit about the work that you do? Let's, let's start with Dorothy. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for, for having me today on this podcast. So I'm working for Nature Finance. There's a senior associate in the Nature Markets team. And we're very interested in this growing momentum and movement behind developing equitable and nature positive biodiversity credit markets and really trying to improve and and sort of strengthen some of the governance arrangements that are about to emerge. Thanks, Dorothy. We will be
0: diving into all of those things in a moment. So looking forward to hearing. Mariana, tell us a little
2: bit about yourself. So I'm Mariana Sarmiento. I'm the CEO and founder of Terrazos. Terrazos is a Colombian company that is dedicated to doing exceptional conservation projects with the caveat that it's through private sector funding. and. I what we do is the result of understanding that there are private companies that need to do investment in biodiversity because of compliance reasons, whether it's regulatory or because of what financial institutions might impose, but now also because they want to do it voluntarily. And what we've done is create solutions for that, and that's where habitat banks come in. We pioneered kind of that tool in in Colombia, and where. From the lessons of Habitat Banking, we have evolved and created a voluntary biodiversity credit product and model and protocol. So that's why we're here.
0: Well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing about that process that you've been through. But I mean, let's start with the basics. What is a biodiversity credit? And crucially, how is it different to a carbon offset? Because I know that's a, a question in a lot of people's minds at the moment.
2: The carbon offset represents a ton of carbon, which can be issued pretty much from anywhere in the world, right? When we're talking about biodiversity credits, we're talking about units that represent biodiversity gains within a spatial area, right? So a hectare or 10 square meters and represent also a conservation outcome for a certain period of time. Whereas in the case of Carbon offsets and carbon credits. Each credit represents annual emissions that were avoided or that were removed. So I think I think that's a key difference because biodiversity credits, in in that sense, can be a lot more concrete. You can always tie them to a specific project and a specific time. Then again, like carbon credits, biodiversity credits are also created to build on the concept of pay for success, right? So once you have issued a biodiversity credit, that credit should represent a biodiversity gain that has already been achieved or an effort that has already been completed.
1: Well, I think as Mariana already hinted at this, indeed also an is it an offset, is it not an offset discussion going on? And in Nature Finance, we try to actually outline a type of Typology, if you want, to make sure when people use the word biodiversity credit to be on the same page of what we talk about. And it could be indeed the voluntary space of companies or even sort of individual investing in in biodiversity projects and producing a claim. It could be traded on a secondary market, potentially a lot of discussion around that. But there's also other sort of, as uh, as Mariana said, other offset mechanisms that are in existence for quite uh, some time that are happening in the national context. So there's a lot of learning to be done on that side, but also looking at how to strengthen those markets. But then similarly, you asked about the, um, what's the link to carbon and certainly in the carbon uh, world, there is the, the carbon plus or so by the rest in hand, carbon credit. So there is that combination of using the carbon currency, CO2 as a currency and adding different ecosystem services. On top of that, but even in the carbon world, there is a movement to go the beyond value chain mitigation. So not just about offsets, but how some of these credits contribute to the bigger achievement of of climate mitigation and adaptation. And similarly, in the biodiversity space to really push above and beyond to really tackle the biodiversity crisis rather than talking about offset.
0: I think that's a great point. And, And I mean, my next question was going to be around, what's the incentive here? If a company or an investor is is already buying carbon
2: offsets, what's the incentive to move towards biodiversity credits? So I guess you're talking about the drivers of demand, right? So I think we're a long ways away from having companies recognize and act on the fact that we are all dependent on nature and that the different value chains have those dependencies and that the risks associated to it. That's the ideal scenario, but that's still going to take some time. I think there's some very pragmatic reasons why companies are beginning to look at biodiversity credits. We have financial institutions that are pushing for implementation of net gain policies, and therefore this becomes a way to deliver on that requirement. We also are seeing that reporting requirements for sustainability reports and all these things that have become more material for investors and stakeholders are elevating the status of biodiversity. So this becomes a way for companies to rapidly be able to demonstrate that they're doing something in a way that it's meaningful, that is evidence-based. And then there's, I think, an, an emotional component that you can tie to clients and therefore product differentiation, but also employee engagement. Those are some of the demand drivers that we've seen.
1: But maybe if, if if I may to to build on top of that, I think there is definitely some of these early movers seen in the space. But I think in the long term, and that is since we're still early early days, if you like, in the broader, expansion or even development of this market is what is the role of different actors to really incentivize the demand? And I think the question of governments becomes very important. And again, one can look to the carbon markets to see a little bit what, what could be done, what could be done differently. But I think having now also the interests like countries like the UK and France, who launched a global roadmap, and we also know from New Zealand, Australia, other countries that are really sort of looking towards the voluntary uh, biodiversity credit markets sort of as an opportunity to help shape how this may may look like in the future. So um, I think that's a very opportune moment to really think and look at different incentive mechanisms or policy-induced demand that may come down the road.
0: I think that's a great point. And, I mean, talking about the government intervention there, what do you think the interplay is between government frameworks intervention on the voluntary market and then those private actors moving? Should it be a collaborative effort moving up in sort of lockstep together? Or do you think there's an earlier role for government and policymakers to to build those frameworks in?
1: Yeah, I think from my point of view, absolutely. I think um, we are at the, a at the crucial moment where, as you said, after the GBF outcome uh, late last year, I think there is growing momentum amongst all the stakeholders. And I really think there's an opportunity to, to work alongside. I mean, there's different interests, there's different roles, whether governments can really push on issues like transparency, for example. I think that is really, really important. But then similarly, what about the roles and really opportunities to bring the local voices to the forefront. I think we, we hear a lot about anyone would sign a paper that, you know, indigenous people, local communities are extremely important in this endeavor, but we see a little bit that actually the governments and sort of, let's say the international discussions are happening much, much speedier than what maybe some of the, the, the project development, and happy to hear Mariana's thoughts here in terms of the engagement with local communities and indigenous people, that how do we marry those two processes, if you like, from an international, let's say, nevertheless, quite intense you know, discussions versus how do we bring different stakeholders, local stakeholders as well, which may have their own opinion, views, and, and really bring them to the table of those discussions that shape the markets at the moment.
0: It would be great to hear your perspective, actually, Mariana, yeah. because in in the global biodiversity, framework text that it does recognize the importance of uh, indigenous peoples and local communities. But how does that translate from this overarching
2: global framework to actually what you're seeing on the ground? I would say kind of two things, and I think in the carbon market, what we're seeing is governments taking a market fixing in a way approach. So you're seeing interventions from governments in some of these markets today, and that's causing a little bit of chaos, I think, in certain jurisdictions. I think the opportunity that we have in the biodiversity credit context is for governments to be also market shapers, right? And for there to be kind of a collective effort in that end. Understanding that any biodiversity project that issues biodiversity credit should be aligned with land use and environmental planning efforts, for example, that the safeguards um, and local regulations on free prior and informed consent are met, but also land tenure considerations and all these things. And just make sure that from the beginning we have A market that creates opportunities for the private sector, but that in the end helps us meet that policy problem that we have, which is the biodiversity crisis. If we understand that biodiversity credits are meant to address a policy problem that affects us all, then there should be room for joint public-private conversations from the beginning. Absolutely agree. And I think as well, this jumps
0: to another key point when you are considering biodiversity credits, and that is, how do you measure it? And what metrics should you be using? And it would be great to hear your thoughts on some, and and we could go on forever about this, because there are so many different ways to measure biodiversity with it being so location specific. But why don't we use the example of the spectacled bear in Colombia, which I know is where you do your work, Mariana, for the credits that you sell. And then let's take a look at how you approach metrics. And then Dorothy, let's take a wider look at how, when you're considering what makes a good credit, you consider metrics as well.
2: So over to you, Mariana. Okay. So in terms of metrics, we would divide it in two kind of landscape metrics, which are kind of land cover and habitat type and that sort of thing. And then there are other metrics which are the result of monitoring efforts at the project level. And what we always want to account for is if we're managing for biodiversity, we want to be able to understand if the area that we've intervened is functional. So we're including indicators related to function, to composition. So if the species diversity that's there, if the species that are present there are the species that we want to look and then function and the structure, right? And if the structure of the, the site and, and the species, then the forest is close to that reference site that we want to move towards. So we always include those three indicators that can give us an indication of those three different things. We are not prescriptive about the method. There's a lot of development in terms of technological tools, which I think is super interesting. But I think more than the tool in itself, I think what's really important to be able to make sure that these projects are long lasting and that they also generate the local processes that we need on the ground is that these indicators are relevant for the people living in these areas because they're the ones that are going to take care of biodiversity in the long run.
1: I think maybe from from my perspective, what I find an interesting discourse and discussion right now is because we have different products and units currently being offered on the market or on development. And I think from the broader market perspective and, and the scalability, I think you have very opposite sides of the spectrum of some saying we need similar to the carbon market. Is one unit that is really accepted globally and that recognized and tradable versus all what Mariana mentioned about the local specificity, the, the uniqueness, the dynamic nature of of the ecosystem, etc. And I think that will be an interesting space to to watch over time. And and you know others sort of also saying well, you know the coexistence of some of these different units or, or metrics, etc. And some sort of you know branded approach, etc. And Again, there is the the value chain connectivity that you spoke about in the beginning, but I think if you talk about the sort of beyond value chain expectation that companies or investors are getting involved in, I think you can then start looking at, okay, I might not have a value chain related to a mangrove in, in Fiji or coral reef, but it might still be sort of for my corporate claims or, or others um, opportunities, like Mariana said, towards Contributing to global biodiversity target that may well fit into the strategy, but I think very quickly back on your question about what is high quality, I think there's also different groups working on topics like uh, integrity principles that also include social dimensions. Again, we mentioned, I mentioned the engagement of local communities, indigenous peoples is of course a big one. The benefit sharing, but. Actually, interestingly, also about potentially safeguards around the financial discipline because I think some of the negativity around carbon markets is also this sort of excessive, you know, profit making, and I think that is a risk also right now that quite well could be seen in the biodiversity credit space and also to working with the different communities and and the acceptance and I mean also some stakeholders. It might be worth thinking about what, you know, is there a way? And I heard this expression, making money kind, and and really sort of see what what opportunities or limitations there are. And again, probably depending on who you speak to in, in the broader market space, you get very opposite reactions. But as a thought provoking idea, I think, um, you know, how do we bring some of that public purpose idea into this uh, development of, of these new markets
0: and certainly i think there is a willingness there from from what we've seen for for companies to want to engage in this area because it's coming back to what you said there there at the beginning there is an emotional connection here everybody can relate to this sort of thing and i think that is sort of a usp really but i think what it does come back to is that reticence from some companies and investors to engage in this market for risk of damaging their reputation or that that fear of greenwashing accusation. And I think that is where all those things that we've talked about, having a good framework so that credits are reputable, verifiable. And actually if they are developed in combination with the people that live in those environments, they're likely to last a long time and, and there there's ownership around that. So I think that's a really important point. What I did want to ask is in the work that you're doing at the moment, what's
1: new and exciting for you that you're working on? Dorothy, I'll go to you first. Well, I think that conceptual space right now to think about the different options and and pathways, I think is is very exciting because again, we have the example of the carbon market, but I think it's also really important to look at some of the other markets about sort of some regulatory or again the different world of governments. You know, when we talk about making these these biocredit markets really in an equitable and nature-positive way, I think around transparency is, is a big, big topic, like what new technologies can we take into it. But I think always making sure to also sort of look at the flip side because, you know, you can get people really talk excitingly about blockchain or artificial intelligence, etc. But then you have again another angle that says, yeah, but how do we include local communities or indigenous peoples sort of knowledge into this or so maybe different ways of measuring and reporting? On on their values or how they uh, interact with some of those ecosystems, Mariana is definitely much more on on the ground, exposed, etc. But from the international governance and international community wanting to look at this, I think it's it's extremely exciting to sort of be able to. Really help shape the impacts, but also the timely scalability. I think that in all the excitement, we don't have any time to lose, right? We have a climate crisis on our hand, we have a biodiversity crisis on our hand, so I think keeping us always in check in terms of maintaining the innovative spirit and character with how we actually get these efforts done on the ground and and moving the money to to implement, etc. And I think having there also not just the talk, but getting people excited to put some some more seeding capital, you know innovation capital on the table for some of the projects to go out and and innovate and and trial. And I think you know, also to one of your earlier comments, I think these are early days and mistakes will be made. So I think we need to create a space where also companies and investors can equally say, we are, you know engaging. In a newer area, I mean, there's a lot of known stuff, there's a lot of unknown stuff, but how do we create a space where they don't feel like they're risking their reputation, but being part of a movement that creates something for the better good at scale? I think that is very important.
2: Yeah. So we're doers. So I think what excites us is the possibilities that we see and the opportunities that we think could be unleashed on the ground. Clearly for that to happen... We need those first mover and those transactions that allow us to understand what the whole cycle looks like, because those are really important for the learning process and also for taking down some of the apprehension that might be out there and being able to communicate, okay, like, what is this? How do I use this as a company? How do I communicate it? And how do I make sure that I'm doing the proper due diligence and that this credit is high quality? I mean, we see huge opportunities. We've seen it in the compliance market. We've been able to, with a couple of transactions, secure 30 years of conservation for conservation sites that otherwise would have never had that sustainability. And we see that opportunity. And I think the other thing that really excites us is being able to have these conversations with communities on the ground and see how they can co-design and really eventually deploy these projects. I think it's going to take time, but, but I think that's where it's really exciting. I, I see great potential if we can curate and help provide transparency and understand that this is a learning process for everybody. I'm very much hearing that we need some front runners and that it's okay to
0: make some mistakes in the beginning. A couple more questions. So I think there is a lot of interest at the moment around these concepts of bundling and stacking and those the co-benefits there. What are your thoughts on this space? Is it something that we should increasingly be moving more towards because the carbon market is more familiar? Is there a way to to reach co-benefits from the same piece of land? Or should they be kept separate?
2: So the way that we see it is a biodiversity credit has a carbon co-benefit, but the credit in itself represents the whole ecosystem that has different co-benefits. So that's, that's how we see it. And being very pragmatic, we haven't even sold the first, at a decent scale, the first standalone biodiversity credits. So thinking about stacking, I think is really risky at this point and really confusing. I think we can do adjacency. So you can have like an ARR project that issues carbon credits, and then you can have a biodiversity credit project next to it. I think that is transparent. But I think stacking is going to be very tricky. And I would hate to see that the market loses confidence because we made it so complicated and difficult to understand in its infancy.
1: Yeah, indeed. Maybe to, to add... I think we have a lot of ecosystems, a lot of terrestrial, some coastal that have huge carbon benefits, a lot of reason to be restored. And as, as Mariana said, carbon is the current nature currency, if you like. So having these opportunities for additional co-benefits or or premium prices, et cetera, will certainly be the more tangible or, or scalable effort at the moment. But What I find exciting about the biodiversity angle is that we can also look at ecosystems that have dropped off a bit of the carbon market side because of maybe their carbon value not being as high, but having a lot of other co-benefits. And I think there is, in in my view, a lot of opportunities for some of these ecosystems to really, and specifically also in, in the marine environment, to sort of say, hey, they have huge, you know, um, huge potential around species, ecosystem integrity, et cetera, et cetera, to sort of we have a playing field. So let's go where no one has played before, uh, while some of these other accounting, you know, avoiding double accounting and whatnot. I mean, there's a lot to be figured out also on the national level. So enough space, I would say, both terrestrial and marine to do some of the piloting. And certainly the urgency
0: is there. So finally, let's just explore what you think the biodiversity credit market is going to look like in the next 5 to 10 years what do you think are two or three sort of trends that you can see
2: happening so i think we're going to see a lot of methodologies and a lot of pilot projects and a lot of innovation and thinking around that and i think that's and i think that's good right i think the tricky part there is, and I think what we're seeing is also these groups trying to put like the minimum standards of what those methodologies need to look like. So I think that's going to happen. You know, we're going to see a lot of different people playing around with different things. I would like to see movers and 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 people more convinced about the fact that you should just invest in biodiversity and us being able to explain that our biodiversity credit in the end it's just a pay for success model that de-risks companies desire to do biodiversity investment and that therefore this is a product that is that is useful to them i really hope that we can communicate that accurately I still think that there's going to be a lot of tension between this debate of offsets and credits, and I worry about that. You know, sometimes I worry that we try to make something so pure that then, like, it's not practical or that we can't find use for something so pure. And what I do think what we'll see, and I hope that we see, is we're going to see a lot more institutions having pledges related to net gain or to at least compensating, you know, or diminishing risks on nature. I think that's going to happen. I would love to see nature-rich countries being able to deliver on these solutions and, uh, and on this thinking behind them. And, and I think that, and I hope that's, a, that's something that will happen because these markets need to work for those people, for those countries, but without ignoring the fact that the ecological services or the ecosystem services of biodiversity are oftentimes, you know, local and regional. So, you know, we should see biodiversity credit projects in every single country around the world. And that would be, you know, a success, I think.
1: But I I, I second you then, Mariana, on your last point about really seeing this driven by nature-rich countries and really taking that opportunity to sort of produce good quality and really sort of, you know, bring some of their own terms, if you like, to to the market of of how this could look like. So absolutely, yeah, signing that one. I think the digital world, it will happen, some transformation to in ideal worlds to to sort of help shape, underline transparency, you know, issues like MRV, etc. So I think that will certainly play an a role and hopefully for sort of really the the better and in this underlining the sort of equity side of this the opportunity we have with these markets so really hope that that will take a, a big boost forward and I think maybe the the third one is in about you know five ten years to sort of see how some of the country as well as sort of the corporate efforts on biodiversity are really moving into into the, the, the same direction. And, you know, we have this broader idea around natural capital accounting and so forth. So I think how do we bring those concepts together and really bring both governments on their own, you know, national territories forward and what is the support between some countries. But I think having there a sort of a broader not just vision, but really action of how some of that can can be implemented and how nature as a whole, biodiversity particularly raises its standing and, and the value within the broader economy. Thanks very much, both. That's all for my questions, but I think
0: what I've heard very clearly is that this is an exciting space. There is a huge amount of interest and a lot of clamor to figure out what some of these issues are in relation to transparency, in relation to measurability. And in relation to equity, what I'm also hearing is that we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good in the sense that there is a global biodiversity framework, which contributes to our, our global climate goals. And this is a really tangible and important way that private finance can be channeled towards nature positive investments. So the opportunities are there for the taking. It just requires a little bit of a leap from the private sector and, and also the public sector too, and those communities on the ground. I just want to give a moment or two if there's anything else that Dorothy or Mariana you'd like to add that you haven't had a chance to yet.
2: Maybe I would say just act now. Let's not wasting time. There are projects out there that are issuing credits. Test it, help build it, give it feedback and and let's make that this becomes an actual opportunity for everybody. Great. Thank you very much both. That brings us to the
0: end of this episode. So, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to or looking to engage with biodiversity credits, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for myself and our sectoral teams on the Global Council website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thanks to Dorothy and Mariana and thanks to you for listening.